0: We're going to jump right into it today. I want to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's what we've been focused on, the idea of being equipped, equipping, being equipped, making sure I'm equipped, all of these different components of it. It's it's one of those things that it's like, I don't want to find out I'm ill-equipped at the moment that I need it. Reach for your gun if you need it, it's not the time to load it. Right? Yeah. Right, okay. You know, it's it's one of those things that when you reach for the tool that you need, we we're just talking about this actually with Isaac, because listen, I don't know what y'all know about. I, you can tell he's a little tired this morning, right? But but he's here. He made it, he drives from Shenandoah, he, he made it, he's awake and all that. But Isaac's one of those guys that when he gets something in his head, that's just how it's gonna roll, right? It's gonna happen. And he's painting right now, and he has a big paint sprayer. And For those of you that have never used one, they're a gift from God. They're they're amazing. He's got this big spray. He's been painting this barn for going on two weeks now. And just, what, yesterday, day before, decided maybe I should use this sprayer. He's had it the whole time. It's hot. Right. I mean, pray for the man. All right? That's what I'm saying. That's the same thing as saying, I've got to drive this nail into this board. I've got a hammer sitting right here. But I don't want to use that hammer because I'm pretty sure if I just swing hard enough, I can knock that sucker in there. I mean, that's where we're at. Is having the right tool necessary for what we're looking for. That is the whole idea that we've been focused on. Is the church today the body of Christ equipped or ill-equipped? And the answer is ill-equipped. There's no doubt about it because you can see the way we react to the things that are going on around us. You see, when you are solidly um, conformed into the image of Christ, you know who you are. You know who he says you are. You know what his word says. You know his promises are true. You never waver. You never doubt. It's very simple. The way you respond to uh, crisis, the way you respond to something happening to you, the way you respond to anything going on around you is a result of the worldview you currently hold. Whatever that worldview is. Now, here's the thing. Everybody's got one. It doesn't mean they're all good. So if you have a secular worldview, as an example, what we call a humanistic worldview, one of which that the supernatural does not exist. There is nothing outside of science. Science tells us everything. Okay. Even though that's not a scientifically provable fact, statement, but that's besides the point. I don't want, I don't want to go down there. I'll nerd out on you all and you guys will leave and never come back. So here's the thing, is that if something supernatural takes place, you have to find an explanation because the explanation cannot be something supernatural. There's something outside of nature. When Jesus was dealing with the Sadducees, remember the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They basically were humanists. They did not believe in the supernatural. Well, here's the problem you got Jesus that was risen from the dead. You all met anybody risen from the dead? Me neither. Okay? There's a bit of an argument there. you got Peter who heals the man at the, the beautiful gate, the gate called Beautiful, in the temple. And they're trying to figure out, okay, are you sure? Like, from birth he couldn't walk? Are you sure? Like, bringing his parents or asking all these questions. Because what happened in front of them does not match their worldview. So they're trying to figure out some explanation for it. So when we are faced with any crisis, the way we respond tells us how well we are equipped. I just talked to Gabe this morning. Did you guys remember Gabe is just heading off to basic? Um, so far, been pretty cushy because they haven't started yet. They've got him there. He, he sent me a picture in uniform. He was smiling, so you know they hadn't started yet, all right? But we were, he was texting me this morning, so they haven't taken his phone away yet. So, so far... So good. And he, I said, well, when do you actually start? He said, we start tomorrow. And I'm excited. And I'm like, okay, let's hope tomorrow night you still feel that way. Right? But what are they going to do? They're going to break him down. They're going to knock him down to the lowest thing they can and then rebuild him from the ground up. That way, if he is ever in a situation that he has to go to battle or whatever the case may be, he is prepared. But... Christianity has gotten away from that. We have these ideas of God, of who He is and what He does and all of that, and we float them out there. We live on what I call meme theology. If it makes a good meme, it must be true. Ideas about the character of God. Ideas about the nature of God. We have arguments theologically all the time, yes, this is true, no, that's not true, but what do we base this on? I think I've told you guys this before, but I'm going to tell you again because I like my stories and I never get tired of them, is... When, when gay marriage was first passed, okay? Now, that is an oxymoron because we do not own the right to change the definition of words. That's not how it works, but be that as it may. When it first got passed, somebody was arguing that Jesus was okay with this because he never specifically mentioned gay marriage, right? And that's a true statement. But the problem is, is he did mention marriage and what it is. And so the lack of speaking against something specifically does not make it admissible. You guys following me? Okay. So it's kind of like the argument is, how many guys are Ford guys? I used to be, and then I put a new motor in the truck I just bought. So not so much anymore. But you're a Ford guy, right? Have you ever owned a Chevy? Okay. You ever owned a Dodge? Okay. So which is better? <laughs> Why are you say it like that? I just got a Dodge. That hurts my feelings a little. Yeah, I did. I did. You can take over payments if you want. But, but you get somebody who's like, man, I'm a Ford guy. It's like, oh, okay, that's great. When was the last Chevy on? I've never bought a Chevy. Those are junk. Well, how do you know? You never owned one. It's kind of like when you're arguing with your kids to try food for the first time. Oh, that's disgusting. You've never eaten it. You don't know. You know what they don't argue with you on? Ice cream. They will try any kind of ice cream anytime. Vegetables, whole nother story. But what I'm getting at is we have this perspective in this world we already created. Nope, that's not it. This is what it means. So my response to her is I put a list of items that Jesus did say. 20 of them, as a matter of fact. It took me a little bit to compile that together. And said, this is exactly what Jesus did say. Since we're arguing from the standpoint of what Jesus said. Her response was, well, I've never actually read the Bible, but... Now here's the thing, you're arguing a viewpoint of the only thing that we know of what the words of Jesus are come from this, and you're telling me what he said in this, but you've never read this. That's a a poor position. And sadly, that is the church today. Because we hold a lot of theological views, but we've never asked ourselves, why do we believe that, and how do we know that's actually the case? Because we never drilled down. We've never been forced to. Because a lot of us, if you ever grew up in church, especially the, a charismatic church, you've just kind of been around it your whole life. You've absorbed it, taken it in. You never ask questions. I don't know about you. I ask a million questions. That, that, the little toddler's like, well, why? Well, why? Well, wh-? that was me, except I was 17. Because I, I'm Serious, I wanted to know. I sat down with my pastor and said, why is what I'm learning in history and what I'm learning in church as far as like Moses and all these guys, why is Moses not in my history book? Because, you know, they'll say he was never in Egypt. The, the Israelites were never there. And that guy tried, just didn't have the answer. Google, I don't think, existed back then. Maybe it did. It was in its infancy. Like, he just did not have the resources. But I continually ask these why questions to the point of I'd drive the guy crazy. You know, he'd go find something for me to do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? And, and so it's like we've never begun to think about, it's like, well, where do we get the concept of God anyway? Yes, there's something innate that we, we, we seek after something greater than ourselves, but why is that the case anyway? And where do we get this stuff? So when we talk about this idea, of this concept of a worldview, it has to come from someplace. Now, good ideas, bad ideas exist. They, they co-mingle all the time. Some good ideas get a little mixed with uh, some bad ideas, and then it just gets off the rails. The church today has adopted a theology of whatever feels good, do it. And that's really where we are is that if it feels right, then God must embrace it. Think about this in the world that you've been around. How come every time somebody has been either praying for something or wanting something, be it a new car, a new house, a new boat, whatever it is, the moment that that comes in, the statement is like, oh man, I got this, God is good. We always do that. Here's the problem. Was he not good prior to you getting that? Now, I know it's a natural response, but just think about that for a moment. The goodness of God is not reflected in the fact that you got whatever desire that you wanted. The goodness of God is His character. And because of His character, He pours out His love and will give you the desires of your heart, so on and so forth. You guys following me? You tracking with me? I want to make sure we're all on the same page because it's important to understand this. See, what God has allowed for us and given us is based upon His character and His provision. So in that, when we look at what we've been talking about in this armor, All of it was given to us for a purpose. It wasn't because you don't need it. He didn't think, he's like, you know, hey, this would be cool, I'm going to give him this. No, every part of this was given because you need it. So let's look at Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So this is Paul talking, talking to the church of Ephesus, which became a very large church. Timothy ultimately becomes pastor. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now here's the thing. As we broke this down, the biggest part that we have to, to take away from all of this is the word put on. That implies that you were not born with it. It also implies that you might be able to take it off. And it also implies it doesn't matter how much you pray, God's not getting you dressed. you got to do it. Right? I'm serious. Whose responsibility is it? It's ours. So therefore, if you're in a moment and you are attacked and the armor is not on and something happens, whose fault is it? It is not God's. I've given you everything you need. Do something with it. How about these trust fund babies we call them? These, These kids that are born into wealth. And their money just gets handed to them, and they lose it all. They're idiots. They screw it up. Everything they needed was handed to them except one thing, the knowledge on how to handle it. Because money is primarily behavioral more than it is anything else. Anybody that's ever invested or done well in life will tell you that. You have to put off what you want today for what you ultimately want tomorrow. But you give these kids, you know, the first car that kids get is not a Maserati, Right? It's some old beater that if it gets tore up, nobody cares. You know, whatever. Why? Because they're terrible drivers. And some of them will grow out of that. Some of them may not. Some of them will back into a pole. That's been there the whole time and it's never moved, but whatever. I mean, the thing is, is that it, it comes with experience, but the bottom line is, is that we given the tools we give the right tools God has given this to us for what we have to put this armor on for what reason? That we can stand against the wiles of the devil, the methods of which he attacks us. Number one thing, we've got to know what that method is. As we talked about, he comes against our mind. Now let's look at this in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, because of all of this, we take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So we stand with the armor on. Why? Because the evil day is coming. Against all of these things, verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, Here's the thing. We have gone through this ad nauseum. I think I've got the picture up here. We've talked about this. Let me move this stuff out of y'all's way. I should have done that before. I wasn't thinking. We have talked about this armor. That this is basically what a Roman soldier would have looked like. This is an artist's rendition. Not exactly accurate. Remember, number one, everything is crafted individually to fit that man. My armor will not fit Jared, no matter how hard he tries. More On the flip side of that, if Jared said, here, Chris, put this on, We better get the welder out. We need more metal. Okay? But from top to bottom, every piece interlocks together. Starting with the the belt of truth. That is where everything locks in. The shield hangs on. The sword hangs on. The breastplate locks in. The greaves that would come up the legs would lock in there as well. Every part of this goes into truth. From there, you break it down. You get every little part. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. It says, above all, put it up above everything else. Don't put your shield down. What do they tell boxers? Keep your hands up. What happens when you get tired? You put your hands down. What happens when you put your hands down? You get punched in the mouth. It hurts. So, above all, keep that shield of faith up. Why the shield of faith? Let's face it, guys. We live by faith and not by sight. We believe that God created heaven and earth and everything in it. Why by faith? Because we weren't there to see it. Therefore, we are going off the example. You can prove it scientifically, but even then, you must adopt that by faith because we were not there. So all the stories that I tell you, the funny stories that I tell you about my life and the things I've done, you are taking them on what? Faith that I ain't making it up because you weren't there. And I've had people ask me, did that really happen? It's like, yeah, I'm kind of a weird guy and weird things happen to weird guys. It's just the way it goes. So we have to take everything by faith. But what is faith? Faith is hope and trust in God and God alone, in Him, in His ability. And what He says goes. It takes faith to stand on God's provision for healing when you're facing cancer. It takes faith to stand uh, for God's provision financially when you're facing a financial crisis. Whatever is going on. It takes faith, in other words, trust in God because He said He will meet our needs. He will take care of us. All His promises are true. So with that, we began to look at the last part in verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watched in the end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We talked about how there is one piece that is noticeably missing if you know Roman history. And that is the spear or the lance. I've got a picture of them. It was... Um, they would carry about five or six of these different things. There was a bunch of different kinds. This one was called a pilum or pilum, P-I-L-U-M. It was a longer one that they would keep in the back. I showed you an example. When they, they stuck the spear in Jesus' side, that that is an example. They had one on them. They always had them. It's missing here, but it wasn't missing if you were a, uh, somebody around the Romans. You knew they had them. You knew what he was talking about. Because the term praying always, it means with all kinds of prayer with all prayer and supplication. So here's what happened. This is one that they would throw. They had shorter ones that they would just jab with, but they would throw this thing. It would hit the shield. It would pierce the shield, and then it would bend, thus making it very difficult to keep it above all. So you're prepared to handle that. They knew what to do. This is an example of that. We liken this to prayer. Why? Because he said praying always with all prayer and supplication. So We'll talk about this. We talked about three different kinds of prayer last week. We've got the prayer of consecration, the prayer of petition, and the prayer of authority. These are all Greek words that we began to break down. And guess what? We're not going to do that again this week because we talked about it last week. If you weren't here last week, shame on you. It is recorded, it'll eventually get up online, right? We need Evan to get a week's worth of vacations so we can get caught up, so he's a good man. So those are the three kinds of prayer, but there are more than that as we began to talk about this, because again, there were multiple different kinds that they would carry. They all had a different purpose. Now, let me tell you this up front before we go any deeper into this. You don't have to sit around like, okay, what kind of prayer am I gonna pray today? Man, just pray. It's always an outflow of the heart. You'll see that here momentarily, but let's look at the fourth one. We talked about the first three the prayer consecration, the prayer petition, the prayer of authority. The fourth one is the prayer of thanksgiving. Now, we think we know what these mean, but we oftentimes overlook little nuances. Now, this is the fourth most common word used for prayer in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word Eucharista. It is uh, used 15 times. It comes from two words compounding of two different words, EU which means good or well, a good disposition or a feeling about something. And then charista, or charistia, I should say, comes from the word, it's an expansion of the word charis, which means grace. So it's this wonderful feeling and good sentiments that freely flow up out of the heart in response to something. So when Paul used it in, his, uh, in the epistles that he wrote, it was always a joyful thinking of God for usually somebody or a group of individuals. Look at it. Here's a few times you can see that. In Ephesians 1 verse 15, it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks. That's that same word. For you, making mention of you in my prayers. Who is he thankful for? He's thankful for the church of Ephesus, these people that have come to faith in Christ. Colossians 1 verse 3 says, We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Again, same thing, Eucharista, same thing. Verse Thessalonians 1 verse 2 says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the side of our God and Father. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now you notice here, we've gone through this kind of quickly. I'm just showing you some examples of where Paul has used this style of prayer. It's the same Greek word used time and time again. It's a giving of thanks because of gratefulness for something. In this case, it was for people who had come to faith in Christ. That's what he was thankful for. And so as he says this in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, in everything give thanks. Now we need to break this down because this is where it gets really complicated. He says here, rejoice always. So how often should you be rejoicing? Always. Is there a time you should stop? No, because I don't care how bad you got it. You don't know how good you got it, especially here in America. I mean, if you've ever traveled out of the country, listen, y'all be grateful for all the stuff we got going on here. Number one, you know how hard it is to get a Diet Coke in Mexico? They don't exist. They have less sugar Coke. Nobody wants that. That's trash. We want Diet Coke. First thing I do every time I land back in the States, I don't care where that fountain machine is. I'm going to find it. I don't care if I'm late for the next flight to get home. I'm going to find that baby. We're We're getting on the plane here after that. So rejoicing always. Pray without ceasing. So how often should you stop? We perpetually, in, a, in other words, we're in a perpetual fellowship with God that we're communing with Him and communicating with Him at all times. And here's the, here's the kicker. In everything, give thanks. All things. Now, here's everything. When you break that down, we hear that word, we think we know what it means. But when you break down everything, in the Greek is where it gets interesting. Because it tells us to give thanks. And when you break down the word in everything, in Greek, it literally means... Everything. No thing not included. That means the bad times too. Why are we giving thanks? Because it doesn't matter what's happening here. It makes no difference. This is temporary. Eternity is forever. Paul is writing from prison. Not our kind of prison. You know, where you get an hour in the yard, cable TV, and go to the library. Air conditioning is wonderful. Three meals a day? I don't know how wonderful the meals are. Paul's in a prison of which you're thrown in there and you're just kind of left to fend for yourself. If family doesn't bring you food, you starve to death. You see John in the book of Revelation. We know he was on the island of Patmos because he told us that. But that was basically kind of like what Australia was at one point where they sent the prisoners. Good luck. Most of them didn't make it. They'd have to find a way to survive on their own. They dropped them off and they left them there. It's this giving of thanks perpetually. So this prayer of gratefulness and thankfulness is in every aspect of our lives. It means on every occasion, in every way possible, we need to be grateful. No matter how bad things get, or at least seem, we need to be grateful for God. Now, when we talk about this offering of prayer, we need to look at this, because Everything is going back to the Old Testament. The foundation of all Scripture is found in the Old Testament. You will not understand the entirety of the New if you do not understand the Old. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time like on this, but I want you to get a, a grasp of, of the Old Testament is literally the building blocks that brought forth Messiah in uh, the book of Matthew, essentially, but the starting of the New Testament, meaning the New Covenant. You have multiple covenants in the Old. You have the fulfillment of that in the New. In Jesus, creating a new and better covenant that you and I are under. So when you read the Old Testament, understand it was not written to you. But all these things were written for your benefit. So we have to begin to digress and get into some of that stuff to get that. And what I want to show you are the five types of offerings that were given in the Old Testament that they would literally bring to the temple. Because when it says bring an offering of praise, it matters. So there were five types. You had the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering and then you had the sin offering and the trespass offering. Five total offerings, two of them you had to do, three of them were optional. You could do it, you could not do it. So the first three, the burnt grain and peace offering, were optional. Bring them if you want. There were reasons that you should, but you didn't have to. But the sin and trespass offering, you had to. The sin of trespass offering, with getting too far in the weeds on this, is basically either a sin done intentionally or unintentionally, and one of which there was uh, consequences of that. So there were things that if you, what we call manslaughter, accidentally killed a person, you know, you're swinging the hammer and the head flies off and it hits somebody, okay, I mean, that happens, I guess. There was a trespass offering that could be given for that that would cover up that. It was unintentional, but there was consequences attached to that because underneath the law, that's where the avenger of blood could come in and there's a whole other thing there. I don't want to get into that. But we see in these three, the burnt grain of peace. These could be brought any time, at any point. There was no limit on it. It wasn't like, okay, it's the first of the month. i got to go do this. It was whenever you felt necessary. We're going to focus on the peace offering primarily. Because the peace offering is the offering of thanksgiving. So let's look at what this was. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11. Those of you flipping there, I'll, I'll give you a second. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11. I know what you were thinking. I was really hoping that we would preach Leviticus 7 today when you woke up. I know it, and so you are not disappointed. Here we go. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offering. So we know what he's talking about. Which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving... Then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it, he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. You guys with me? Isn't that fun. This is good, isn't it? Verse 15, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder of it also may be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. And it continues on, we're not going to. But boy, if you were never thankful for this new covenant that we're under, that helps. That's just one. This is a snippet of what they went through. To bring a thanksgiving offering. That's, this is, in other words, there's a gratefulness. A good harvest, they bring a thanksgiving offering. A win in battle, they bring a thanksgiving offering. Sometimes, they would bring the thanksgiving offering prior to the fulfillment of what they're giving thanks for. It's crazy, I know. Well, how do you know to be thankful? Because we are trusting God. You see, the spirit of thanksgiving should play this dominant role in our lives. We're thankful and grateful to God for everything. If you woke up this morning, you got breath in your lungs, you need to be thankful. But that aspect of it is so vital to this spiritual weaponry because what happens when we begin to get beat down? We can lose our gratefulness and begin to go, Okay, God, why me? Why is this happening? Why why are you doing this? All this other stuff. You see, if you know who you are in Christ and you know the character of God, you'll never have to ask the question, God, why are you doing this to me? You'll be thankful. Remember when, in Acts chapter 5, when Peter was told, listen, you guys can keep preaching, but don't preach in the name of Jesus. They were arrested. It happens a couple times. And they said, sorry, I'd rather be obedient to God than to man. And so they're questioning, like, what do we do with these guys? We can't just kill them. We want to, but we can't. So they're going to let them go. But before they did, they beat them and then sent them on their way. And what was their immediate response? They went back to the brethren and gave thanks that they were found worthy to face persecution for the glory of Christ. We cry if somebody unfriends us on Facebook. But think about that. When it says beaten, it wasn't like, oh, they got a spanking. They were flogged. Like, they were beaten. And their immediate response is they're grateful because they knew they were doing something right because the world did not like it. Okay? It's this... Thankfulness. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer, and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot going into this, but I'm focusing on these two verses. Normally, I will give you a lot more context. The context is pretty simple here. Here's the thing. Be anxious for nothing. So what should we be anxious for? Does that mean you need anxiety pills? No. What are we anxious about? We live in the greatest country in the world. What on earth is going on that we're all stressed out? In everything, by prayer and supplication. How many of you guys prayed today? Awesome. How many of you guys supplicated today? How many of you all have no idea what that word means? I love your honesty. (laughs) By, in everything, by prayer and supplication, and then there's the, the component, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. The result of that, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So in other words, when you're facing a crisis, what do we need to worry about? Nothing, right? Because God's got this. I don't care what I'm seeing. I know God's got this. And everything through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you let your request be known to God. And as a result of that, the peace of God, which makes no sense whatsoever, will guard your hearts and your minds. You guys catching this? Like, we we quote these verses all the time, but we never sit down and think what they mean. Like, what's it mean to supplicate? I'll get there. You know? Oh, well, the NIV, the nearly inspired version says so. (laughs) Then it must be true. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of the wisdom of knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. Now, there's a lot here, but you see what Paul's talking about, the church of Colossae he's dealing with. He's telling them, remember what you've been taught. Don't get swayed and deceived by persuasive words. In other words, don't let some car salesman talk you into buying a car you don't need. You don't need the warranty. It's overpriced. Okay? He's saying, don't get caught up in this. I'm absent with you in the flesh, but I'm with you in spirit. What does that mean? He's like, listen, I'm there with you. I'm with you all the time. Think about my words. What have I taught you? That's what he's getting at. As you've received Jesus, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. In other words, in the trust, in the hope, in the knowledge, as you've been taught, Abounding in it, and abounding in what? The faith, with thanksgiving, no matter what's going on. But you need to be paying attention, because someone could cheat you. They could bring some empty philosophy, and empty deceit, that's either based off the tradition of man, or the basic principles of this world, either one. It's not according to Christ. You guys seeing that? Are we seeing that today? Oh my goodness. This is where we get these, these mixed ideas is that when well, Jesus loves everybody, therefore everybody gets to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. You call him God, they call him Allah, some call him Buddha, some call him whatever. It's the same God. We've never sat down and thought this through. And if you are not got your antenna up and know what's going on, you may begin to believe those things. You may start to believe little things that are said. You can't turn on the TV today without hearing lies. It's all over. It's really tough to discern through the nonsense to get to their actual facts. I mean, they're just talking about the pandemic. We're all freaking out about the pandemic. Oh, my goodness, there's sickness going around. And now you're starting to see all oh, the death rate is like .003 or 8 or something like that. I mean, more people die from aspirin. It's, but, but this is what it is. Why? Because it's blown out of proportion. We can't discern through it because we're not up and ready. And it's like, I'm standing here like, well, who cares? You know what? <laughs> Whatever. I mean, it is what it is. What am I going to do? Why am I going to freak out about it? I'll just be thankful to God for His health, wealth, and provision. And if I go, then I go. You know? So we've got this idea of thanksgiving in every aspect of our life. Why do we pray for our food? We're thanking God for His blessing and His provision. Do we take that for granted here? Oh my goodness, do we ever. We don't go hungry. Look around. Who's going hungry? Nobody. Right? Well, we've been to El Salvador. I'm going to tell you. Are there people that go hungry there? Yeah. The church steps in, don't they? But They help out. But I mean, there, there are people that don't have a daily meal. They can't just at any point tell, I'm hungry, I'm going to go get something. They've got to work and make it happen. Other parts of the world, the same thing. Does that happen here? No. You know why? Because the government steps in. Should it? No. It should be on the church, us taking care of them. But the bottom line is, is there's nobody that bad off in the country. Comparatively, to one another, sure. Compared to the rest of the world, if you own a vehicle, no matter how bad it looks and how bad it runs, you're wealthier than 48% of the world. I think we're doing okay. We need to be grateful for what we have. If we would adopt that attitude of thankfulness, suddenly we would have more funds to go to the work of the ministry and always were, instead of focusing on, oh, I got to have this and I'll find contentment in this. That's a side note. Prayer of thanksgiving, it goes with every single prayer. With thanksgiving, and then here's the last one. I should say the last one, close to the last one. The prayer supplication. The word that we don't know what it means. Because we don't use that. We don't use those words. So it comes from the Greek word in Texas. E-N-T-I-X-I-S. I know Ethan thought I said Texas. Where's he at? There he is. Yeah, he got all excited back there. I did not. We don't use that word here, all right? But the root of that comes from the, the Greek word intagchano. I I, again, I can't pronounce half of this stuff. But the word en is in or into, and is to happen upon. It's to fall into a situation or to happen into circumstances with somebody else. It's actually a two part process here. So it's used in forms that are usually translated as intercession. Okay? It doesn't necessarily refer to intercession as most people think of intercession. We think of intercession is that we're interceding on behalf of somebody. We think about that in prayer, and that is true. Or we think of maybe somebody intercedes in a situation, you know, to help somebody out, whatever the case may be. It can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that because it carries the idea of one who comes to God in a simple, childlike faith to freely enjoy the fellowship in the presence of the Lord. That is where this is coming from. Some of the expositors out there that write all these fancy books that most of us can't read will, will tell you that this is the most simple, individual form of prayer that exists. In other words, I'm coming to God as if I'm a child talking to my Father. That's literally what it's talking about. It's to fall into the presence of the Lord and this relationship that is there. Because we don't worship some entity sitting on a throne, it is this interpersonal relationship that we have. The disciples had it with Jesus, it never changed. So, when you look at this, it can be translated supplication, which means to supplicate with the Lord. The word is used in classical Greek literature to depict a love relationship between two lovers. So, two individuals who happened upon one another, who found or discovered each other, and now they're sharing their lives together. That is literally what this means. So it denotes this intimate form of prayer where we learn to come before God in this childlike faith and freely express ourselves and our desires and to unreservedly enjoy His presence. That's literally what this is meaning. So when we supplicate, we are humbly coming before the Lord, somebody who we have a relationship with, and asking for something. That's Literally what the word supplicate means, so now you know. That's not how it's necessarily used in today's culture, but this is what, what it means. You see this in several places. In Psalms chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. What's he doing? He's humbly going before God. Psalm 5, verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Again, humbly coming before He knows he needs God's help. He cannot do this on his own. Psalm 6, verse 4, return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for, uh, for your mercy's sake. Again, we're humbly coming before the Lord. Psalm 7, verse 1, O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. I put my trust in you. He's humbly coming before the Lord. This is how we come to God in prayer. Now, let's go back and look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So what happens is, is we're, we're not worried about it, but we're coming to God in prayer, because that's how we commune with Him, and we're humbling ourselves before Him with thankfulness of heart, knowing that He will respond. And what is His response? He sends that peace. He guards our hearts. He guards our minds. But we have to humble our hearts before him. If you say, I got this, you fail the test. If you think you can do this on on your own, you've missed the point. It doesn't matter what you're capable of doing, it is a matter of what God has said to do. Come to him. He's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. You see a pattern developing in the book of Judges, as a matter of fact, of this same sort of thing. Okay? In Judges chapter 2, verse 11, understand what's going on here. They, this is right after Moses dies. They were to, uh, Joshua takes them into the land, they conquer the land, or at least part of the land, they did exactly what God told them to, to a degree, they weren't completely obedient. What they were supposed to do is drive out all the people that were there, that way they had the land to themselves, God had equipped them to do that, He had gone in before them, and He said, I want you to do this because you don't want these people around, because they would lead them to idol worship. And we watch in Judges chapter 2, we we're starting verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, and had brought them out of the land, or who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asherites. Why did they do that? Because instead of driving these people out, see, that influence would not have been there had they driven them out of the land, but they chose not to do it because basically they got in there like, listen, this is good enough. I mean, we got enough. We're all right. They did not take everything that God had promised them. In fact, they never have. To this day, they have not taken the entirety of the land. So, they forsook God and served the Baal and the Asheroth. Those are false gods. We'll get into that another time. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, and as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. So what's going on? There was a, a, basically, the covenant that they had was that I'll be your God, you'll be my people, you keep my commandments, you'll do well, if you don't, you won't. What do you want to do? They said, yeah, we're in, we like it, sounds good. And they did it, and then they immediately broke it. And so basically they're facing judgment because they are worshiping false gods, which is exactly what God said would happen. But the judgment was always to bring them back to God. So, verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Don't think the dude's sitting on the bench with the gavel. This is a deliverer. This is somebody that was intervening. Yet, they would not listen to their judges they played the harlot with other gods and they bowed down to them and they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Remember that word groaning. We're going to come back to that. Because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way so in other words they began to worship these false gods breaking the commandments of the Lord God sends judgment upon them but they would begin to cry out and God would raise up a judge and God would be with that judge as long as that judge was alive the people worshipped Yahweh they continued to do it but as soon as that judge died they kind of went back to their own ways and sure enough the cycle would repeat it was time and time again but he would hear them groaning and he always had mercy and pity on them and he always made a way So they were humbly coming before the Lord in repentance and God would deliver as he said he would do. You guys kind of see that? That's what we're talking about. This humble attitude of which we come before God. If you come before God arrogantly as if, you know what? I don't really need you. I got this. I'm just praying because I have to. It's kind of the thing that we do. You're missing the point. If you humble yourself before the Lord, humble your heart, humble your mind, humble everything about you, like, Lord, I need you. That is when we have a prayer that can be answered, a prayer in which God can respond to. So, the last one we're going to talk about today is the prayer of intercession. The prayer of intercession is one standing or one who has favor in authority, and they uses it to make an appeal for a person who does not. So you think about the judges, the deliverers, they were kind of an intercessor because they would deliver the people of Israel. It's a go-between. You see intercessors used all the time, not just in church, because we think intercessor, we think, oh, somebody's praying on behalf of another. Yes, that's the case, but intercessors are used all the time. Uh, You know, they're used in courtrooms, they're used in things like that, because party A and party B can't get along, so they get an intercessor that party A tells intercessor what's going on, who refers it to party B. Party B responds to the intercessor, they're the go-between. Okay? So, they do this when it comes to this uh, spiritually speaking, for people who don't necessarily have the strongest relationship for God. They're, or maybe they have no relationship. I mean, we've all been in those situations. You got somebody who has no relationship with God, whose things get bad. It's like, oh, will you pray for me? And we carblodge say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you, and then that's the end of the conversation, sadly. But the first time we see this is used in Genesis chapter eighteen with Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter eighteen. We're starting in verse twenty. So the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it, and it's come to me, and if not, I will know. So he's getting ready to look into this. He's looking into what's going on there. There were seven cities that were around that area. Sodom and Gomorrah is at the center of the attention. Okay, And so he's going to send destruction to them, ultimately does, and he's telling Abraham about it. Now, verse 22, the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? What's he doing? He's intervening. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. He begins to negotiate, if you will. All right, And you guys know the story, he gets down, he gets down, and if you find 10, all right, fine, if I find 10, you know, and and he doesn't. But God's ready to destroy Sodom. He's telling Abraham what's going on. Abraham steps up, he intervenes, and he says, God, um, if God always acted like God, we cannot relate to them. He could not go in there and say, listen, these people, they're wicked, blow them up. Get them all. That's what Jonah wanted. Don't send me to Nineveh. Go ahead and send the meteor. Just get it over with. Do the world a favor. All right? But God was intervening through Jonah. Here, Abraham is stepping up saying, listen, is this really how you're going to act? Is this really your character? Does he have to remind God of his character? No, of course not. But he's sitting there saying, it's like, listen, you wouldn't take out the righteous. We know a lot was there. So at least one. Maybe the only one. So, he's ready to destroy Abraham steps in. God will permit a righteous person to pray on behalf of one or many who are wicked that will put a stay on the judgment for a season. We see that happen throughout Scripture. Sometimes the consequences of our stupidity will finally add up and now we've got to deal with it. And that is most of the time. But the bottom line is this, is that people intervene with God All the time. There's an urge to pray for individuals. God will put somebody on your heart. You begin to pray for them. You're intervening, interceding on their behalf because maybe they don't know what's going on. Maybe they don't recognize it. Some of you guys have been interceding for family members for years because they don't have faith in God. They're, They're kind of going about their own way. And so you begin praying and praying and praying, Lord, reveal yourself to them. Let somebody go across their path. Open their eyes, whatever the case may be. And so that is interceding. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 23. It says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, talking about Israel, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing to prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They do not have distinguished people, the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing to prey to shed blood to destroy people and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have used oppressions and committed robbery, uh, mistreated the poor and the needy, and they have wrongfully oppressed a stranger. So I sought for a man among them. Who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. What was he looking for? Somebody to intervene. Couldn't find it. There was none holy. Judgment had to be sent, but he was trying. He wanted to find it because this is his people. This is his people Israel, his chosen uh, nation. So he goes on all the different things. The priests. Now, what were the priests? Don't think of what we think today. They had the prophets that were the voice of God. You had the priests who were the ministers of God. It wasn't like it is today where you and I are kings and priests and we can go to God. Anytime there was an intermediary that came between man and God, and those were the priests. And what are they doing? They're after dishonest gain. They've hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths. Remember, the Sabbath keeping was a sign of that old covenant. That was what ratified it, that they kept the Sabbath, and they weren't doing that. So they're out there, they're tearing people apart. They're dividing them. They're seeing false vision and divining lies, and saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. Now, I want you to understand this is a side note, but there's a difference between a false prophet and somebody who prophesies falsely, and this is a perfect example of that. A false prophet is one who knows they did not hear the Lord. Someone who prophesies falsely is one who thought they heard from the Lord, but maybe they were wrong. It's all an intention of the heart. Was I trying to get it wrong? You need to know the difference because it matters. But all the things that they were doing, God was looking for somebody to step in, couldn't find anybody. So when it comes down to us bringing this back into this covenant that we have, this relationship we have, we don't have to wait for a burden to be a go-between. We can be one right now praying for people, interceding for people, all the time. Verse Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore I exert, exhort, first of all, all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Sound like what we've been talking about? Absolutely. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may, we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. If you're praying for your leaders and there are people who at least fear God, they'll leave you alone. They can make your life miserable. Verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Exhort means to say something over and over again, to remind them. A revelation is maybe something that you've never heard before. We're to pray for kings because God wants us to live in a quiet time. During World War II, what was going on, they could not travel around the world because it wasn't safe to travel in a boat because it might get blown up. And so missionary work came to a standstill, and money was tight. I wasn't there. Maybe some of you were. I was not. Okay? But money was tight, so things were in an uproar. And so it talks about praying for leaders. There's a stability that comes in. And stability allows more activity to take place. It's this praying for leaders, praying for one another. We should be doing this all the time. That is intercession. Those are six types of prayers. You guys see that? There's six different types. Now, are there more? Sure. But these are the words that are oftentimes used in the New Testament. But there's actually one more that is mentioned by Paul, but often gets overlooked. It's used really basically one time. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Because there's a type of intercession that goes on here that we don't think about. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit of self makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Remember I said, remember that word groanings. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, who is doing the interceding? It's the Holy Spirit. Does it not say that the Spirit helps in our weakness because we don't know how we should pray? Well, what do you mean we don't know how we should pray? We say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's we don't know how we should pray. That was not intended to be a canned prayer. So, the Spirit makes intercession with, for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, we need to know what that word groanings means, right? But we need to take this a step further because it's used in connection with believers and it's used in connection with the Holy Spirit. So, the one doing the work of intercession was the Holy Spirit. But what is this groanings that He is using? And uh, Ephesians 6, verse 18, look at it again. Praying always... With all prayer and supplication, we broke that down, in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the same. If you you break this apart, it says praying always with all prayer, praying always with supplication, praying always in the Spirit. So now we've got the Holy Spirit making groanings and we've got this praying in the Spirit. Now just like the word supplication, what does that mean? you grew up in a charismatic church, what does it mean? Praying in tongues, praying in the Spirit. Are you sure? Some of you guys are giving me evil eyes right now. Are you sure that's what it means? Because just like any other term that we use, we often glance over it, make an assumption of what the word means without ever actually going and saying, what does Scripture say praying in the Spirit is? Because if you're like me, you grew up with one definition, but you never looked into it yourself. So what does praying in the Spirit mean? I'll tell you next week. Nobody throw anything at me.